0: What are you seeing in the industry, and why is it so difficult to hire right now?
1: I remember uh, seeing a picture of a McDonald's billboard saying that they were paying $19 an hour, which is higher than the average dental assistant gets paid. And the, the dental forms were going crazy. Like you work at McDonald's and not at a practice um, for the for the same amount or more. If you can shift your team's perspective to being something much broader than, hey, you're drilling and filling every day, and you're scrubbing and scaling every day, it it really transforms uh, the purpose and one's purpose for being there.
0: everyone, welcome to this episode of the Happy Practice Playbook. I'm Mo Jones, and in each episode of the show, you'll hear conversations with dentists, office managers, staff, and specialists who know how to create a happy practice. Today, we are joined by Ryan Vett, a passionate entrepreneur and international speaker and author who has experience in and out of the medical vertical, as well as a trained sommelier with um, two multi-location craft beverage lounges in North Carolina. Welcome, Ryan. How are you today? Doing well, Mo. How are you? You know, it's a good day. Kind of feels like a Monday, but it's a Tuesday, which means things are gonna get better because I'm that much closer to the weekend.
1: Absolutely. Well, it's good to be here in Utah at Weave HQ.
0: So exciting. This is our first in-person podcast recording, and you're here with us. Man, I... I'm, I'm feeling a little nervous just because I'm so used to like doing these online. So having someone in front, but I think it'll be good. It'll be good. It'll be great. So we like to start this podcast off with a statistic that we like to talk about. Today's statistic is 80% of dentists find it extremely challenging to hire hygienists and assistants, while more than 70% find it extremely challenging to hire admin staff. What are you seeing in the industry and why is it so difficult to hire right now?
1: The the staffing challenges are beyond dentistry, I and mean, it's facing everywhere across the board. And I remember uh, seeing probably about a year ago now a picture of a McDonald's billboard saying that they were paying nineteen dollars an hour, which is higher than the average dental assistant gets paid um, in the United States. Obviously, some are higher and, and some are lower, but that's the average. And the the dental forums were going crazy. Why why is this the case? Why can you work at McDonald's and not at a practice? Um, for the for the same amount or more and i think one of the biggest things that we've seen is obviously COVID has just had an impact on the way people view their life as a whole um, and how they view their home life how they view their work life what work looks like what that work-life balance is and what's most important to them it gave uh, some people time to search for a new career path gave some people time to search for a new job uh, inspired some people to go back to school and start, uh, especially since schools that were previously only in person moved online, that provided opportunities for people to learn. Um, and then you have the childcare crisis. So people that are normally a stay-at-home parent now have uh, issues with daycares is always closing for two weeks because of uh, you know outbreaks of COVID or things like this. So people have really had to reevaluate their priorities, and they've taken a step away from their job, and they either have gone somewhere else or maybe are just staying home.
0: Okay, so one thing that I was just thinking about when you were saying that was people going back to school. So with the opportunity to go back to school, do you think that is allowing for once maybe people are wanting to go into the uh, our dental verticals that they have that opportunity to do so?
1: I think that's definitely a possibility. Now, the interesting thing about any medical practice is you need to practice, hopefully, in, in person and at least on uh, you know mannequins before uh, humans. And so some of the virtual schools aren't allowing that, per se. But I think the other thing that we've seen is a lot of people nearing retirement age deciding to accelerate that um everything from the added stress of hey if i go in i have a loved one at home that is um you know what am i going to bring home to that loved one or the extra ppe that they had to wear for so long that was hot and uh, hard to breathe i mean my wife's a dentist and she would talk about wearing the double masks and the face shield and the hairnet and all these other things a lot of which is good ppe and i think will be here to stay but, you know, she would have, they had like scrub in, scrub out stations, and uh, they would wash all their clothes at the practice, just all these things uh, that just made their job that much harder.
0: So when we're talking about maybe that environment, so I think we're talking about our, our overall environment as well, how do you create a good workplace environment that people want to work at, that, that you can retain people?
1: It's Good. I mean, the old adage is you don't leave a job, you leave your manager. I think there is truth to that. Um, and, and I think... There's things that, I mean, even here at Weave today, I just had uh, an awesome experience at, at Weave. I'll brag about you guys for just a minute. But company culture is important, and that it overflows into the team and then overflows into your your customers. And same thing at a practice, it overflows into your patients. But at Weave, they let their leaders of the organization uh, serve lunch every other Tuesday. And so I was served by, um, you know, high-level uh, team members here at Weave. And that's just a great, it reminds me of uh, Simon Sinek's book, Leaders Eat Last, Um, But all that to say, a lot of it goes into creating a culture that's worth working for. Uh, It is easy in a lot of small practices in particular. You've got five, seven people, and you become sort of a family. Well, families uh, don't always have great times at holidays, right? There's sometimes conflict in families. And when you're in a high-stress situation, that conflict usually bubbles over and becomes um, more prominent. And a lot of people don't always take the time to work on their culture because what's been working has been working for the past 20 years, and so one of the things that I, I encourage a lot of practice owners to consider is how do you build a culture uh, that is edifying, that people want to come to work every day? Uh, a lot of people go to their job because it's a job, right? And, and that's not fun for anybody. Um, but when you go to your job because you love seeing uh, patients smile, and, and I love that in dental, like literally actually smile, maybe for the first time, they you know, they're, they had uh, you know issues and so they their smile was off or they were missing half their teeth. Now, for the first time, patients can smile and uh, see that. Like, if you can shift your team's perspective to being something much broader than, hey, you're drilling and filling every day and you're scrubbing and scaling every day, it it really transforms uh, the purpose and one's purpose for being there.
0: So would you say you have a formula to create a culture or start from that from someone who doesn't even know where to start, especially when we have, even to... If you have a office full of different personalities and people, how do you how do you even start that?
1: I think one of the biggest things is being aware. Most people don't even think about their company culture or their, their practice culture. They just do. You know, They just go into work and put on their, their white coat and drill and fill and leave. But I would say if you can start focusing on your culture and see what's going well and what excites people to be there and what they're passionate about. I mean, people, we are 360-degree people. We don't just, uh, you know we're not uh flat we're not 2D we don't just go to work and that's one person and the other it, we that all intermixes and i think now more than ever because uh the world is so uh mixed up like if you have an exposure to something you're staying home like we're, it's just a different uh different world in which we live i think understanding what makes your team a team and really diving in and uh, analyzing different things that make your team tick and celebrating those things
0: you also mentioned servant leadership kind of earlier so i think Here at Weave, it's a little bit easier to see that example because we're in an office environment where we can have lunch and have them serve. But what about maybe like our listeners and our dental offices? What would that kind of look like?
1: One of the things I see so often in dental offices, and I'm going to pick on dentists for a minute, uh, they're not the only culprit, but what I I see happen is um, the dentist has an office manager or a team lead that basically runs the practice and the dentist comes in and does his or her dentistry and then leaves which is great, they can do that. The reality is if they are the owner and they're the leader of the practice, they're not an employee of the practice, so they need to act and start leading like that person. So that means coming early for your team meetings and being present in your team huddles and not being on your phone and not just saying, yep, that's fine, I'll see these patients today. I mean, I think there is, um, when you're a leader, it's easy for a leader to act like their own employee and not actually step out and lead. And so I think leading by example and servant leadership in a simple way is just uh, if you require your team to do something, you better do it too.
0: Okay, so we've got our our initial staff that we're here in retaining. What do you look for when you're hiring a new office manager or a receptionist?
1: I think it goes back to culture, actually. I mean, there's there are tons of people with skills uh, that can do a lot of work in the dental office. And a lot of the skills can be taught on the job. Um, it does take skill, so you can't throw someone novice into these roles, but you can train them up over the course of time. Um so I think the biggest thing is not necessarily their skill, if you have someone skilled already. Um, that's a big caveat. But it is actually the ability to make sure that they fit with the other team members they're going to be working with because conflict is going to happen. It's not if it's going to happen, but when it's going to happen. How do they resolve it? Are they servant leaders too? Are they going to lay down their interests for the sake of their team? Or are they going to you know stand on their uh, ground and on their soapbox and say, no, this is the issue and the hill that I'm going to die on? So I think... Um, you know, hiring for culture is really good. One of the things I ask, because um, I've, you know, my background is beyond uh, dental, and I, I did a lot of, um, I was in the, the tech space for a while, so I hired a lot of different people in a lot of different roles, and when you're hiring a developer, and a designer, and a marketer, and a customer service person, and a salesperson, they have extremely different personalities, um, which is great. That's what makes a team a team, right? You function better with those different perspectives. But One of the questions I love to ask is, um, what are you passionate about? And you would be shocked how many people have a hard time answering that question. Um, it's not because they're not passionate, but it's, it takes them, you know, a step back. And some people will say their family. Some people will say work. Some people will say being the best, winning. You know, if it's a salesperson, they're always going to say, I'm passionate about money. I'm, gonna, I'm passionate about winning, right? And that's, that's what they're passionate about. Or a creative person like, I like to make the world more beautiful um and, and those are stereotypes those you know not cookie cutter molds but figuring out and getting to the root of who someone is not what they can do is really almost always more valuable in trying to hire
0: so is there would you say a golden answer with someone's passion that would help you determine this would be a good fit or not
1: um i would say just genuineness i mean if they're truly passionate about something like Sometimes people get really scared if they say, hey, I love my family. I've got these two kids. I love them and you want to see a picture on my phone. Um, by the way, that gets into a whole HR complicated thing about asking about kids um, and family, so don't ask specifically about kids and family. If they offer it, you can you can look at the pictures. That's a, that's a disclaimer. Um, but they, uh, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, I don't want someone that's going to always be leaving at 2 o'clock to go to see their kids. I, I don't think that's necessarily true. Just if they're pa- truly passionate about something, that usually means they're a fairly disciplined person. And then I often ask, "How do your priorities around uh, revolve around your passion?" And, and then they give this deep stare. Again, they're like, "What do you mean, my priorities?" Like, "What are your priorities in life?" Oh, well, I want to have this much money in my bank account. I said, "No, that's not, a, or that's a goal. That's not a priority. Um, you know, your priorities are are the things that don't change throughout the course of your life. Your goals are the things that you can set for the month, the year, um, or even a decade. But the priorities are those those foundational things. And um, for me, when I'm hiring, if someone knows and has at least somewhat decent answers, even if They haven't polished them because they're not expecting those answers. Um, But it has somewhat decent answers. It means that they're a person of conviction. They're passionate about life and what they do.
0: Would you say that knowing your people's passions play into the culture you create?
1: I think it definitely can, um, especially in celebrating your team. And in a small office, when uh, you have only a handful of people, you can really remember those things. The worst thing you can do as a leader, and this is something I'm very guilty of. In fact, I've had to put systems and people in place to help me uh, do this is I, you know, I can have a conversation with someone and forget some of the details that they've they've shared and they'll remember everything about me and next time I go and I'm like, how do you remember my kids' names? Uh you live in where? And they're like, no, I'm your neighbor. It's like, oh um that that exact thing has never happened. But I, I have systems to to keep notes now in place um to be able to do that. But in a small team it's really easy to remember those passions and remember um what gets people excited in prioritizing that and knowing what makes someone tick. Like if it is family then know that when there's a crisis at their family and they ask to go, but they've been someone with perfect attendance and everything else, you need to probably let them go. Or if it's someone that just wants their their work life balance and loves to travel, um, and you know they they really have been saving for this huge vacation, and there's a, a crisis and their car breaks down, right? Um, you know maybe you can help them out with that as a practice owner. Um, there's just different things that you can know if you know what people are passionate about, what they love, and what drives them, what motivates them. There it's much more easy to incentivize them.
0: So I am definitely guilty of forgetting details and things about people, and then remembering me. So, what are some ways that you uh, that you keep notes that, that keep you keep you organized that you'd mentioned?
1: Yeah. So I I have um, when possible I bring someone with me to a meeting or I have a note taker um, like on Zoom and their virtual calls um, with permission you have to ask before you record anyone. Um, but I, I have those things so I can go back and call those, and then I've got. Uh, a content contact management system uh, that basically has people's names, information, and just notes that I can stick in there and uh, research. And I have someone that will, um, even if I'm going to a place, like pull bios of people and put it all together, so I can have pictures and names and be a little bit more prepared.
0: Okay, that kind of reminds me of The Devil Wears Prada, Randa Priestley. When she had Emily and Andy at the party and they were just they had to memorize all the pictures and tell who the people were. Yeah. That's what that just reminded me. It makes a huge difference
1: though. (laughs) It makes a huge difference in making someone feel valued and important.
0: So Uh, how do you effectively hire a new hire?
1: I think hiring is one of the most important things you can do for any business because the wrong hire, and I've got case studies upon case studies, both in, in dental but really beyond, where companies that were um, growing and going to be extremely successful have fallen apart because of a single wrong hire. Now that's not always the case, but hiring is important. So asking questions that are, again, relevant to culture, I think is, is key. Um, Getting to know the person and having other team members interview them. The people that are going to be working with them every day should be interviewing um, your, your potential hire. And sometimes if, you know, that's not always possible, but when possible, that's, that's critical. And then uh, one of the traps I've found myself in in hiring is I'm like, hey, Mo, come interview this person with me. And in my head, I'm already yes or no with that person, and you give the opposite answer. That's a really hard shift, but then you need to dig deeper. Why did you say that? Well, you know, I don't like that they wear purple shoes. Well, then we can get over that, and we can you know have a uniform dress code at at, uh, at the office. Or it's something, hey, they said something that really rubbed me the wrong way, and this is actually going to be a cultural issue, and it reveals what could potentially be you know a big issue uh, a big challenge in your practice. So I think uh, having multiple interviews and one of the risks right now, and I've seen this happen time and time again, is um, a practice hires someone, the person never shows up for the first day of work because there are just so many um, people scrambling that they keep raising pay and keep uh, shuffling and jumping jobs. And at some point that's going to cliff and fall off and go backwards a little bit. And I've already seen that happen. But um, you do have to hire fast right now. So th- you have to be very thoughtful um and if you're going to bring someone in for an interview make sure you check all of those boxes i know working interviews are really uh, popular make sure there's time to actually talk to the team how someone works is important especially if they're clinical um but how they interact with your team and your patients is equally important Um, because they could be the best clinician uh from a a technical standpoint but completely rub your team the wrong way and your practice is going to be uh, worse off than not having the team member at all
0: so when you're talking about these group interviews do you just take one or two people from that team together or do you do an interview with the whole group.
1: I'm not a huge fan of group interviews. That's a personal preference. That's not a, a right or wrong. I have no data or statistics other than experience to say I find people are much more honest when they're one on one. Just naturally, they don't feel like there's a firing squad in front of them. Um, and second, everyone can go have that conversation afterwards. So I can say, hey, well, what did you know? Ken did. Y say? And you know, they said that they. favorite color was blue but they told me it was green um if you're interviewing for colors that'd be bizarre but you know something (laughs) like that um and we can be like oh those didn't line up or something about their work history so it also um obviously people get nervous during interviews so don't judge a person's whole integrity and uh, honesty on that but it can give you different perspectives because everyone interviews different and asks different questions and some people are more conversational and others are you know have their four questions um on their interview sheet that their hr department gives them and they check it off and said Yes, they can do this. Yes, they play well with others. Tell me a time and you had a difficult, you know, the the four basic interview questions. So um, I think, uh, you know, having those team dynamics one-on-one can really open up things that might not happen in a group interview.
0: When you're asking for that group collaboration at those interviews, do you find it more effective with that new hire having an in-person discussion or each person giving you kind of their, giving their written feedback to you for you to review?
1: oh that's a really good question i would say both i think that they need to write down um on a piece of paper have it there uh, and actually write down what's said in any conversations because what what can happen is you know our our judgment if there's a car accident right now and you're on one corner i'm on the other it's your view my view and what actually happened we have three different perspectives um and, and so i think it's important to write that down but also to get together as a group because then it's like oh they said this and they said that and you can start building off and you might um, kind of peel back the onion a little further than you might have before.
0: Do you think in including your teams on these group interviews that also leads to your retention success?
1: Absolutely. Um, it it gets people invested in working together and, and that's the big thing. Um, people long for community. I think it can help with a group interview for sure. Um, the risk that you run into is one out of five people doesn't like the candidate, and so now you're hiring against that person's decision um, or recommendation, and so that causes conflict too that you have to work through. But it's better to be upfront about that and figure out what is it that you didn't like about that person. How can we navigate um, to get to either a resolution or maybe that's a big enough stopping point not to hire that person? And again, in this landscape, it's hard. I mean, when you have someone that's living, breathing, and someone has a degree, like you're putting them in the seat that they need to be in um, it, because of the the tough hiring uh, situation that we're in right now.
0: One more question about this group hiring, kind of group hiring and collaboration, do you use the same people or do you rot- rotate them out of who's doing those interviews and how do you determine that?
1: I would use who the person's going to work most closely with. Um, if you have too many people and, you know, the whole team does it and you've got like a seven-hour interview, A, you're going to wear down your candidate um, and they're going to be like, this is terrible. Um, B, you're going to increase your likelihood of someone opposing the candidate. Um, but if you have, you know, if there's two or three people that this individual is going to work with, that's who I'd have interviewed. It doesn't have to be a bunch of people. Uh, so when I say group interview, it's usually more than one. Um, but you know, it doesn't have to be more than four or five.
0: You also mentioned how sometimes candidates won't show up to their first day of work. So how would the hiring timeline affect that? And what would an ideal hiring timeline look like?
1: Yeah, let me take this out of dental for a minute. Um, I own several coffee shops and craft beverage lounges, uh, in the Southeast and, One of the things that has blown my mind, and I'm not actively involved in the hiring uh, day-to-day, but I am aware when people aren't showing up for the jobs and there's bigger uh, uh, labor force issues, one of the things that has blown my mind is we have to offer a candidate a job on the spot right now with a pay, with offer letter, before they leave and have them start usually within 24 hours. Um, It is just an unreal world. And, uh, I mean, candidates expect to either walk away with a job or not, expect to have a start date. I mean, we've had candidates start sign their paperwork and start immediately after if we can get them through, you know, the necessary employment checks and make sure their identity's good, background check, that things. So we, I mean, it is unreal, the the world in which we live. Dentistry, I think, has a little bit more flexibility, but people are quitting their jobs without two weeks' notice. And, And it depends on your state and your contract, and, you know, we don't have to get into the HR side of it. But there's a... There's an honor side of it and an integrity side as a human being giving uh, someone that you've worked with the decency of that that two weeks, but we're not even seeing that now. So I would say if you're planning to hire someone um, and you've got multiple candidates, be really transparent. Like, hey, we've got three candidates or four candidates. This is our interview timeline. This is when we're making a decision and stick to it and let the other people know um, if they didn't get the job. Now, definitely have a signed offer letter from the candidate you offered first. Otherwise, now you've just upset um, the other candidates and you're not going to get them back either, even if they were your second choice. So, And don't tell them that, you're, that you were your second choice. That's bad form.
0: That, that is bad form. I would I would personally hate that. You were a second choice and here you are. Yes. Excuse me? Yes. <laughs> okay, so <clears throat> when we're talking about retaining our people and our new hires what is the best effective way to train them? Is it you're doing the hands-on training or having your staff involved?
1: Yeah, there's so many unique uh, positions in a dental office. If you think about how small an office is, like let's boil it down to the smallest possible office. You've got really four people. You've got the dentist, the hygienist, the assistant, and someone in in the front. Um, That would be like the smallest bare bones office. And each one of them has different skill sets, different degrees, different experiences, and usually different personalities. So training and on-the-job training is tricky um in a smaller practice now if you have a big practice they can co-train cross-train you know you've got uh, treatment coordinators and billers and you've got all sorts of things so there's more flexibility there but in in a small office let's use that model for example i go back to culture i I know i've been harping on that word but it's so important um does your practice does everyone that's in your practice know why you exist and most dental practices are like i'm not a big company i don't need a brand and mission statement and vision statement and I sort of subscribe to that's a little unnecessary, but does everyone know why you exist? Is your practice all about um, seeing any patient that walks through your door? Is your practice all about providing the highest quality, even if that comes at a high cost? Is your pra- You know, each practice has a an, an ethos. And so what is that that makes your practice tick and communicate that over and over and over again? And what are your core values? Is it um, drill and fill in and out as fast as you can? Or is it Hey, we want to have you know two-hour hygiene appointments, so we get to know about everybody's family tree and their history and how they you know first came to this country. What whatever it might be, um, and there's practices for both. Um, but I think ha- making sure you uh, really uh, not only drill that in when you're training someone, but that's the the breadth of your practice every single time you're talking about culture and what's going well and what's going not. You can say, hey, these are our core values, and you just chewed that person out because their credit card got declined. That's not our core value because we care about people. Um, or, or whatever it might be.
0: So setting a, a foundation of what the practice about will really lead to the success of your people, regardless of the position they're in, right?
1: Absolutely. I mean, we we at all of our our shops, and they're all very different because um, we try to be local. So no one knows that there's um, you know a, a engine behind it all. We try to be local and be a part of the community, and uh, our every single person should know that we build our Um, our whole model on creating experiences worth sharing and the reality is every single time someone walks into a dental office you're creating an experience now it might be worth sharing and it might be worth sharing because it was really good or really bad but we want to create that positive experience worth sharing so that every single person that comes through our door is better off um, having been there than um, before and we personally invest in our team first because if we invest in our team first they're going to invest in our partners who invest in our guests same thing I think it's true at a dental practice. If you invest in your team and you love your team well, they're going to be smiling when that patient walks to their front door. They're going to have that uh, happy voice on the phone when, when you pick up the phone, and they're going to see that little pop-up from, from Weave that has the, the family information. They're going to be able to wish happy birthday and ask about Johnny's you know, soccer game last week, and it's just going to be a much more engaging experience. But if it's just a job, um, it's you know, Dr. Smile's office, and then that horribly awkward silence on the other end. and um, you know It's just not, not personal.
0: In investing in your team, how do you find the balance of how flexible you are with people's schedules and preferences?
1: <laughs> so dental is one of the harder industries. This is, is any medical, right? Um, your patients come on a schedule and you have to be there. Customer service is another one. When someone picks up the phone, they want it to be there. Uh, someone to answer it on the other end. Restaurant and service and hospitality are another one. They're, the schedules can't be as flexible because of the nature of the job. So the reality is... Um, you can't always let someone go at two o'clock unless it's truly an emergency. Um, and if that's the case, you wanna do anything possible to make sure that you're caring for your team in whatever emergency that they have to deal with. So you find flexibility in other ways. Either um, you know every other week you cut your Friday short or you know you give more time off in the summer or you give more paid time off. I mean, I, I know one practice that gives six weeks a paid time vacation, a dental practice, which is ridiculous. Um, but that's important because they have really hard schedules. The other can't do fast math. What is that? Fit? Forty-six weeks of the year, um, and they take two other weeks off. So I think they have eight weeks off. It's it's uh, unreal. But I think being able to, since flexibility isn't always a thing, especially in the healthcare, um, finding other ways to be flexible and reward uh, behavior. If, if there's no patient scheduled on the high hygienist column and all the notes are done and everything's ready to go, you know, send them home. Don't make them wait around um, if that's possible. You yeah. know, so.
0: Okay. (laughs) Well, we are almost out of time. So we always like to end our show with what we call our motivational tip, which is one page out of your playbook that you could give to our listeners that has brought you success.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, we've been talking a lot about people, so I'll give a tip about people, not necessarily about teams, but I think as a leader, and, and this is for for leaders that want to have a happy practice. By the way, I'm going to say happy practice playbook before I get up and speak. Now that's so much better than like many mumbling mice make midnight music in the moonlight. Like that was, <laughs> like happy practice playbook. That'll take a while to get that muscle memory. Um, but but leaders, uh, leading can be hard. Uh, if you're the solo practitioner in an office and you're you're the practice owner, there's no one you can talk to. You're you're at the top, and you know you get everyone's good stuff and usually more of the bad stuff. And I have found as a leader, in order to have joy in your life, because you have to be joyful to overflow that into others, I've always kept three people um, in my life. The first one is what I call a forerunner. If you think of a race, it's the person who's at the front, the person who's gone before you. It's a mentor. It's someone who can pour into you because they've already been there. Um, and, And I always try to keep those people in my life. The second is your running mate. Who are you running alongside of every single day? Who is that person that is in that same stage of life, same stage of work, professionally, personally, that can... That can carry you forward. That hey, when you you know you're slowing down, they're like, no, you can keep going. Um, and then the next week, you'll probably tell them, no, you need to. Keep, you know, it's the back and forth. And who's that person? I always um, every Thursday for almost a decade and a half now. I talked to the same person. It's not always been on Thursdays, but that's that's our current call time. Um, and but it's been the same person. We've gone through life together. Um, and I have other people that I call regularly when sometimes you just need that that push. Uh, so who are your running mates? And then finally, and maybe most interestingly, is. Who are the people that are a few steps behind you? Um, not because they're, they're not <laughs> good, but because they're, they're younger they're, or they're newer in that profession or whatever it might be. Who are those people that are trying to c- be where you are in three to five years um, and have those people? I often find when I have mentees or people that I'm mentoring, I learn more from the questions that they ask me um, and the way I answer them and I have to actually reflect on, oh, in that scenario I did this and I shouldn't have done that or that went really well, you should do that. Um, and, and I, uh, so I always keep those three people in my life and uh, sometimes they're consistent. Like the one guy I talk to every week and sometimes, uh, you know, they're for a year or two in a season of life where I am learning something new or need to figure something out.
0: So, so a forerunner running mates and those a few feet behind you. Yes. Okay. I'm already thinking of who that might be in my life. I'm trying to, I'm trying to have my own playbook of success here. There you go. <laughs>
1: As long as the happy practice playbook. Yes. I'm, I'm going to get that. Happy practice playbook. Happy
0: practice playbook. Well, that is a wrap for today. Thank you so much for being with us, Ryan. It's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you to everyone listening. Don't forget to join the happy practice playbook Facebook group, where we'll be discussing this topic more and sharing other helpful resources to help keep your people happy. And as always, I'll be posting to get all of your tips and tricks as well. If you like what you heard today, hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out on the next episode. We hope you'll join us next time. It's your girl, Mo Jones.